And as believers, we can have that same understanding, how God takes us from where we were. And as we'll learn in 1 Thessalonians, that they turn from idols to the living God, takes them from serving idols to serving the true and living God. God works change in our hearts. Welcome to The Cleansing Word. We invite you to stay with us as Pastor John Pinnell of Calvary Chapel Lake Villa takes us through a verse-by-verse study from God's Word. Each Monday through Friday, we'll be airing messages to encourage you in your faith that you might grow in the knowledge of our Lord and Savior, Jesus Christ. I hope that you enjoy this broadcast, and I'll return at the close of this teaching to give you more information about our church and how you can obtain a copy of this message. Now here's Pastor John with today's message from God's Word. Today we're going to be looking in 1 Thessalonians as we begin our study. And the church in Thessalonica was founded by Paul very quickly. It was during his second missionary journey, somewhere around A.D. 49, A.D. 50. By the time we get to the epistle of 1 Thessalonians, Paul is still in his second missionary journey. He's in the city of Corinth, and he's very concerned about this church there in Thessalonica. He's concerned about how they're doing. As we get into the letter next week, we'll learn that he had even sent Timothy back to see how they were doing. And so he physically sent one back to the town just to see how they were doing, to encourage them in the Lord. And by the time the letter is written, Timothy has returned from Thessalonica. He has given a tremendous report to Paul about how the church has been established. And we'll see some of that today as we get into Scripture. But first, I want us to look at how they were birthed into a church. It's on his second missionary journey. In Acts 17, verse 1, it says, Now when they had passed through Phipolis and Apollyon, they came to Thessalonica, and there there was a synagogue of the Jews. Then Paul, as his custom was, went into them, and for three Sabbaths reasoned with them from the Scriptures, explaining and demonstrating that the Christ had to suffer and rise again from the dead, saying, This Jesus, whom I preach to you, is the Christ. And some of them were persuaded, and a great multitude of devout Greeks, and not a few of the leading women, joined Paul and Silas. So here's the birth of the church in three weeks' period of time. The key word there in verse 4 about the devout Greeks were Greeks who worshipped God. They were called God-fearers. And so they were there around the synagogue hearing the message that Paul was presenting. The message that Paul was presenting was, proving to them, explaining and demonstrating from the scripture that Christ had to come and suffer and die and that Jesus was the Messiah. Realize they had a concept of what we deem the second coming today during his first coming. They thought when Jesus was coming that he would set up his kingdom on the earth right then and there. 
and they didn't get the concept, still Israel to this day, the Jews, Orthodox Jews, don't get the concept of the suffering Messiah. And Paul was explaining and demonstrating from Scripture that this was to be so and that Jesus was the Christ or the Messiah. Some were persuaded, meaning some of the Jews believed, but a great multitude of devout Greeks and a few of the leading women there in Thessalonica joined Paul and Silas. So this church is mostly a Gentile church. You had many Greeks and the leading women joining them. Some from the synagogues also joined there. That happened over a three-week period. And then it says in verse 5, But some of the Jews, when they were not persuaded, became envious and took some of the evil men from the marketplace, gathered a mob, and set all the city in an uproar, and attacked the house of Jason, and sought to bring them out to the people. And when they did not find them, they dragged Jason and some of the brethren to the rulers of the city, crying out, These who have turned the world upside down have come here too. Jason had harbored them, and these are all acting contrary to the decrees of Caesar, saying that there is another king, Jesus. And they troubled the crowd and the rulers of the city when they heard these things. So when they had taken security from Jason and the rest, they let them go. From there, the church now in Thessalonica, three weeks old or older. It might be a little bit of time has passed here. All we have in Scripture is that Paul reasoned with them from Scripture there in the synagogue for three Sabbaths. For three weeks, he was there. And perhaps he spent a little more time with them, time enough for the church to grow and to blossom, but also for the Jews to become envious of them to go down to the marketplace and gather a mob of evil men. I mean, they hired out some bad guys to come and get Paul and Silas and Timothy. But they couldn't find them. I don't know where they were at this time. The church knew. They found the guy who had housed them, Jason, and brought him there. But the charge against them, that these are they who have turned the world upside down. And the second charge is that they preach another king, saying there's another king. His name is Jesus. Turning the world upside down here in Thessalonica, that's what was taking place. For many who became believers, their world was not turned upside down, but right side up. They were in fellowship with God once again, and for many for the first time. And as believers, we can have that same understanding, how God takes us from where we were. And as we'll learn in 1 Thessalonians, that they turn from idols to the living God takes them from serving idols to serving the true and living God, that God works change in our hearts. And this is the change that we see. In verse 10, it tells us that the church sent Paul and Silas away. Timothy was with them at this time. And they went down to Berea, about 45 miles away. They preached the word there, and the Bereans were considered more noble than those in Thessalonica, for they searched the scripture daily to see what Paul and Silas was true or not. They tested the word with them. They, they heard the gospel message, but then they looked into the word to see if it was true or not. But then there were those from Thessalonica who came down, heard that Paul and Silas was there in Berea, and chased them out again. And then Paul went to Athens and left Timothy and Silas there in Berea for a while, and then sent word back saying, meet me here in Athens. And then ultimately they ended up in Corinth. By the time Paul got to Corinth, His second missionary journey doesn't seem to be going that well. First of all, when he proposed the missionary journey to Barnabas, 
Barnabas said, that sounds great. Let's go. I'll get my nephew, John Mark. And Paul said, no way. You're not bringing that kid with us. He left the first time right in the middle of the work. I won't let him come with us again. And so Scripture tells us that they were parted, that Barnabas and John Mark went off to Cyprus, and then Paul chose Silas and went off to the churches that they founded in the first missionary journey. Desiring to go into Asia, he was hindered by the Holy Spirit and ended up in this area of Philippi. There in Philippi, he preached the word and was beaten as a result of it, both him and Silas thrown into prison. You remember the salvation of the Philippian jailer, how they the next day after the Philippian jailer came to faith, that while they were in prison that night singing praises to God and the other prisoners listening, that the earth shook and the doors were opened and the chains fell off the prisoners. But the prisoners didn't escape. They could have, but they didn't. And because of that, the Philippian jailer gave his life and his whole family did to the Lord, were baptized. But Paul was on the run. He goes from Philippi to Thessalonica, has conflict there, goes from Thessalonica to Berea, has conflict there, goes from Berea to Athens, doesn't seem to have many who follow the Lord, ends up in, in Corinth, and there in Corinth the Lord would come to him at one point at night in his dream and say, Paul, do not be afraid, for I have many people in this city, and no one's going to harm you here. So we get this feeling that in Paul's second missionary journey, it just seemed to be a total disaster. And then the Lord gave him peace for one year, six months there in Corinth. It's there in Corinth that Paul writes this letter. But it wasn't a disaster. Though his time was short there in Thessalonica, God had begun to do a mighty work through them and then in the church there. And I want us to see that today and see how this church became examples to all. In verse 1 of 1 Thessalonians, it says, Paul, Silvanus, Timothy, to the church in Thessalonians, in God the Father and the Lord Jesus Christ, grace to you and peace from God our Father and the Lord Jesus Christ. So Paul, Silas, another way to say his name, and Timothy, writing back to the church, as we learn in this book that Paul, and I've already mentioned, sent Timothy back there to see how the church was doing, to strengthen them, support them. And Timothy has come back to Paul now with this good report. And now Paul writes this letter to them. And it's to the church that's there in Thessalonica. But notice that here in the first verse, that the church is in God the Father and the Lord Jesus Christ. The church was founded in, in one sense, all mankind is founded in God. God is the creator of this world. This morning, I was reading a report about DNA, and they're really beginning to break down the DNA molecule and, and really take it apart in such a way that they are finding that we have certain traits and genes that are traced back, but traced back to one mother, one father, which goes right along with creation of Adam and Eve. Actually, this article traced the female gene back to Eve and the male gene back to Noah, but still bringing it down to one and one because everything eventually had to funnel through Noah, who was a descendant of Adam. We are in God the Father in this world that we exist because of him. Turn with me to Colossians, Colossians chapter one, verse 
16. It says, For by him all things were created that are in heaven and that are on the earth, visible and invisible, whether thrones or dominions, principalities or power. All things were created through him and for him, and he is before all things, and in him all things consist. So in God, the Father, and the Lord Jesus Christ, in him all things consist. Here, talking about Jesus, this world is not only created by the Lord, but held together. We exist because of him. But in verse 18, it goes on to tell us that he is the head of the body, the church, who is the beginning, the firstborn from the dead. And so our Lord Jesus is also the head of this church. So they're the church in Thessalonica. It's in God, just being a a person on this earth, we're in God, whether you believe it or not, God has created all flesh. But the church was founded in God, not the work of men, but the work of God, God the Father and the Lord Jesus Christ. He goes on to say grace and peace. These have been deemed the two Siamese twins of the scripture, grace and peace. But it's also been said that You cannot know the grace of God until you have experienced the peace of God that comes from having peace with God through Jesus Christ. And so Paul, he always starts off his epistles with these two. Sometimes he adds mercy to them, but saying grace and peace. But notice he said, from God our Father and the Lord Jesus Christ. Two different prepositions, in and from. But also it's it's a key there to me that Paul isn't just writing a letter that this letter is inspired by God, that Paul realized that this is an inspiration of the Holy Spirit, that the Lord is working through him. And so the letter is from God the Father and the Lord Jesus Christ. Peter writes it this way in 2 Peter chapter 1, verse 21. For prophecy never came by the will of man, but holy men of God spoke as they were moved by the Holy Spirit. Holy men of God being moved by the Holy Spirit. I believe that's what Paul is telling us by that one little preposition there from God the Father and our Lord Jesus Christ, that he's being moved by the Holy Spirit to write this letter to them. Continue on in verse 2. It tells us, We give thanks to God always for you, making mention of you in our prayers, remembering without ceasing. Now, later on in 1 Thessalonians in chapter 5, verse 17, it tells us to pray or pray without ceasing. And here we have part of that prayer process, that while they're praying, giving thanks to God for the church there in Thessalonica, they are remembering without ceasing. They're praying without ceasing, but they're also remembering without ceasing the church that they founded there. And what are they remembering? Your work of faith, your labor of love and patience of hope in our Lord Jesus Christ in the sight of of our God and Father. Here we have the third time, God the Father and the Lord Jesus Christ being mentioned. The church, once again, it's in our Lord Jesus Christ, in the sight of God our Father, to realize that God is watching. There was a song years ago, secular, saying that I always feel like someone's watching me. It's true. Now, they were talking about surveillance stuff, and perhaps we worry about Big Brother having too much information in our lives today, but there's a great father, our father who is in heaven, who is keeping an eye on this world and upon his children. And so the works that we do, they're in the sight of our God and father, in the sight of our Lord Jesus Christ. 
But let's look at the works for a moment. Here are the church in Thessalonica, birthed after three weeks, maybe a little more, but at least a minimum of three weeks' time. Because of persecution, the founders of the church had to leave. And so they're on their own at a very early age. So here you have, you know, three weeks, a month-old Christians saying, okay, who's going to be the pastor? They were novices at best, but they had the Holy Spirit of God with them. And here we see that how the Holy Spirit was working through them, that there was first the work of faith, secondly, the labor of love, and thirdly, the patience of hope. The work of faith. In James, he writes to us in James 2 about this faith. In James 2, 14 through 18, he talks about, if you say you have faith and have no works, then your faith is dead. Then he goes on to say that I'll show you my faith by my works. That if there's faith in your life, it's going to be evident by works. So often there are those who claim to believe in Jesus, but there's no example in faith. There's no working out of their faith. You don't see it. You don't see it demonstrated. And that's what Paul is talking about with the church here. They were demonstrating their faith. There was this work of faith a demonstration of faith. It's our faith being active in our lives. That work there in the Greek, it talks about our business or employment. And we think about business or employment, we think about that which we weekly do, right? On Monday morning, we all get up. I do too. I come to church. We go to work. It's our business, our employment that we have. And so the work of faith, it goes with us daily, just as our jobs do. But also it's the labor of love. Now, when I think initially, when I thought about the labor of love, I thought of Jacob and Rachel. Back in Genesis, we have this story in Genesis 24 where Jacob came to his uncle Laban and he's been running from his brother Esau as Esau had threatened to kill him. And so he ran from home, went to his uncle Laban and saw Rachel and fell in love with her. And eventually he started serving his uncle, but his uncle said, you know, I can't let you just keep working for free. What will your wages be? And he said, let this be my wages, that I'll work for you seven years if you give me your daughter, Rachel. And so that was a labor of love. Scripture tells us that those seven years went by just like that for him because he so intently loved her. The seven years were nothing to him. It was a labor of love. But I also think about the Lord Jesus Christ. See, that word labor in the Greek is not the same word that is translated for work. And we look at it, work and labor, they're kind of the same, but they're not. In the Greek, they're two different words. The word for work, as I said, meant business, employment. The word for labor can be defined out by meaning intense labor united with trouble or toil. I think of Jesus in that. Jesus said, no greater love has any man than this than to lay down his life for his friends? Think about the labor of love that our Lord gave for you and for me. The toil that he went through, having his back ripped open, being nailed upon the cross, the crown of thorns that was placed upon his head. It was a labor of love. And it is a labor of love. In return, we should be returning back that work of faith, that labor of love, in patience of hope. Now, the hope is in the coming of Jesus Christ. Quite often, we don't preach enough about the second coming of Jesus. But if you look in the book of Acts, the first message that Peter preached, the first message that Paul preached, it was about 
Jesus being the Messiah, saving them from their sins, but also that Jesus was coming again. Here in 1 Thessalonians, we find that Paul talks about the second coming of Christ in every single chapter. There's only five chapters, but in every single chapter, he's talking to the church about the Lord's return. And that's something I believe that the church isn't talking enough about today. There are many churches who don't believe that the Lord is returning. Many churches believe that we're the ones who are going to usher in the kingdom of the Messiah, that it's our works and nothing that's going to be a supernatural work, but we're just going to Christianize the whole world. But today, the fastest growing religion in the, in the world today is not Christianity, it's Islam. If we're the ones who's going to do it, we're losing the battle in a big way. Many of the churches in England have been converted into mosques. It's happening here in the United States. And so we place that hope in Jesus. It's called a patience of hope. We're waiting patiently, but we have our eyes set upon the Lord, in the Lord Jesus Christ, in the sight of God our Father. Verse 4, knowing, beloved brethren, your election by God. Now here's an interesting verse that troubles many people. I have been raised in the Baptist faith to teach, and we're not Baptist here, but I was raised in the Baptist faith, that teaches that whosoever calls upon the name of the Lord shall be saved. So anyone can be saved. And I absolutely believe that. But there's another side to that coin, which teaches this election by God, is that before the foundations of the earth, God ordained or preordained those who were being saved. And I absolutely believe that. You mean God chose me? Yep. You mean I chose God? Absolutely. Doesn't seem to make sense, does it? No. It doesn't seem to be. Spurgeon called it a great mystery of Scripture. He called these two twin sisters that cannot be separated, but that they were a great mystery of Scripture. But they are taught throughout Scripture that to realize that your coming to God the Father was not solely on your own means, but it was the work of God bringing you to him. You are not only created by God, but God has uniquely worked in you in such a way to bring you to this place of salvation. But then you could say, well, that's not free will, is it? He's forcing me to be saved then. Well, I don't feel like I was forced into anything when I responded to the gospel message. I feel from my perspective that I had that choice to choose. But the thing is, is see, God sees the big picture. We don't. See, God knows those who will be saved. So therefore, he can predestine those who will be saved, those who will respond to be those who are elected by God. It is definitely an interesting mystery, one that I didn't want to dig into too deeply here today, because I really want us to see the example there in the church in Thessalonica. I want us to be a people who are examples to all, who know what it means to have a work of faith, that you're just daily, it's your job, it's your business to work out your faith, that people know that you're a believer, to have a labor of love, that you're willing to sweat for it with much pain and affliction, even if necessary, to have that patient of hope, that hope is in the coming of Jesus, that the world will testify that church in Lake Villa, Calvary Chapel, they're small, but there's something about them. 
Do we have that kind of testimony? I desire that for us, not just for myself, but for us as a body, because I believe God can do tremendous work through just a few who totally and wholly set their hearts upon him. Father, we thank you for your word and ask that you would be with us now, Lord, as we offer this time of invitation. Perhaps, Lord, we have claimed faith in you, but we haven't been living it in such a way that others can see. And perhaps, Lord, it's time for us to make that commitment to you in such a way that, look, Lord, I just want to have this work of faith, this labor of love, this hope in you that is reflective in my life. And I don't feel that it's been that way of late. So, Lord, I just pray that you'd work in our hearts. If there are those, Lord, who have not believed as of yet, maybe today is the day that you're calling them to you, that they can begin this work of faith, begin this labor of love, begin this patience of hope. Whatever the case may be, Lord, I pray that you'd work in our midst this afternoon. In Jesus' name, we pray. Amen. Calvary Chapel is a fellowship of believers in the Lordship of Jesus Christ. Our greatest desire is to know Christ and to be conformed into His image by the power of His Holy Spirit. If you would like more information about Calvary Chapel, or if you would like a copy of today's message, please contact us at 847-265-0646. That's 847-265-0646. Thank you so much for joining us today. And may the Lord richly bless you as you worship him today.